On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the other people who are affected by McMaster not being open in the fall, at least doing everything online. We're not talking about the profs. We're not talking about the students. We're not talking about the university itself. We're talking about the Westdale and West Hamilton community. 30,000 customers now not going to be there. How do they deal with that? We're also going to be chatting about food because uh, you're not going to like this, but food prices are about to go up and maybe a lot. And we'll explain why. At least our guest, my guest will explain why. It's coming. And there's good reason for it. You'll understand. And we're also going to be chatting about the NHL. They've come up with a plan now that if they can come back sometime in July and August to play a Stanley Cup playoffs, they will. Do you know one of the places that they are proposing, though, to hold these games? I'll give you a hint. It may be the hottest spot on the face of the earth. We'll explain. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Tracy McKinnon is the executive director of the Westdale BIA. She joins us now. Tracy, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Scott. Thanks for having me on. When you heard yesterday or someone called or you got an email or however you learned about the announcement from McMaster's president that the school was going to be closed for the fall semester at least, was there an audible gasp in your office? Uh, yes, um, <laughs> but it was understandable and also not unexpected given what other universities were going to do um, and what they had announced. So it wasn't unexpected, but certainly um not helpful, I'd say. Well, no, I mean, I, look, every every person that I've ever dealt with who is the head of a BIA tends to be an optimist. I think you have to be to hold that job and you're trying to pump up the businesses and, you know, it, it helps to have that kind of attitude. Yeah. But even someone who's an optimist, I mean, you have to look at this and go, you know, we're trying to put a good light on things, but this is close to a disaster for most of our businesses, I would think. It, it, it is hurtful, but we, we do always try to find opportunity uh, when things like this arise. So right now, even even in the midst when all the students were sent home in March, a lot of our um, businesses sort of retooled. Some instantly set up online stores. A lot of the restaurants switched into delivery and pickup only. Um, so they were able to adapt. So now to have this sort of last several months longer, um, then, it, you know, we certainly try to be very fluid and, and adapt to um, the changing messages that come from the university, the municipality, the province. So um, we'll, we'll, we do always try to be optimistic and we'll adapt mm. and, uh, and try to see the best we can do. Well, and I, I understand the adapting and I don't want to be radio's version of the Grim Reaper. Um, but, but when back in March, when things were shut down for a long time, anyway, it was still unclear what was going to happen. So most of those students probably were still in the area, or at least many of them were in rental homes or even some of them in residence. And so takeout food or delivery food or other things that was in, they were still around to take advantage of those businesses. Now you're looking at a situation where most of them won't even be in the area. I mean, that, that's got to be a whole different challenge. Uh, well, it, yes and no. So there, there still are a number of students that are have stayed and are here. And I've spoken to a number of the landlords um, for anybody living off campus. And, you know, a lot of them have students that have moved in. They have generally, um, for a lot of the good places off campus that are close to the university, which would be most of Westdale, they sign their leases, you know, as early as December, January. 
So they've already signed their 12-month lease. And a lot of, from what I was speaking to some landlords, they have moved in or they're planning on moving in. And still, I think some students are going to want the university experience. So the experience of going to class is part of the of the university experience, but also going out on your own, living in your own place, socializing with, you know, your new peers, learning to live away from home, all that sort of a university experience. So I think that there will be still some students that will look to have that university experience. So we expect some, probably not the 30,000, but um, a number of international students are here. They were unable to go home. They've stayed, they're, they're signed on for another year, they've signed leases, so we still have that element that's here as well. Uh, well during the uh, student experience part, you, I noticed you left out the drinking your face off on Dalewood until the police arrive. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't add that in there. We did uh, last you, year host, host a nice homecoming with the student union that went well, and the police were happy and the students were happy. Yes, so it was much better. Balance. It yeah. was much better. Uh, we'll try and find a have... nice balance too. Do you have any idea or is there any way to know what percentage of the Westdale shopkeepers business comes from students? I mean, is yes, it, even if we don't know a percentage, is it a majority? Uh, so actually, um, we have focused, tried to actually focus our marketing on the Westdale sort of permanent residents the last couple of years, but we've taken um, polls from our businesses and generally it's about a 50-50 split. So 50% of the business is students, 50% is uh, residents of Westdale and surrounding areas. And because of our location, we're so close to the highway, we do get a number of sort of, you might call them a tourist, but someone coming from Burlington, Oakville, even Ancaster, we consider them a tourist. So uh, we have a number of people that travel to the specialty shops and restaurants um, in Westdale. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tracy McKinnon is the executive director of the Westdale BIA. And Tracy, I know just before the break, we were talking about how you are and how the BIA has marketed and and geared things for the permanent population. That said, and that's obviously very wise, that said, if you're a business, if I'm a business in Westdale, one of the things I know is that I can always bank on, for the school year, I can always bank on the university. I mean, there's literally no scenario in which a university is going to shut down, and then there is. I mean, even if you've done a magnificent job gearing this towards the permanent residents, it has to be a giant kick in the pants a bit when that number of people are not there anymore. Certainly, certainly. Sure, overnight you lose 30,000 customers, basically. So to any business, that would be devastating. But, um, yeah, they're such a big part of our community, um, of, our, of our businesses, um, their clientele. Yeah, it, it is a hit. It's a hit. But, um, again, like we say, we try to be fluid and try to be adaptive to um, what the circumstances are and what the future holds for us this year. Would I be correct or would I be taking a, a wrong guess here when I say that the, the companies, the businesses in your area that are going to be particularly hard hit would be things like the fast food places and the coffee shops and the pubs and places like this that, that are a natural draw for university students. There are some places that probably don't even require any university. I know there's law legal offices and things like that. They're, they're going to be fine, but there are others that really do rely on it. Absolutely. So the food businesses, but a number of them, like I said earlier, they they have adapted to sort of the new um, COVID world and have a, have moved to to a lot of um, 
take out, pick up. So we're getting a lot of support from our community. A lot of people are now realizing how important local businesses is. Um, the way Westdale set up, it was a planned community, and it's almost like a hundred years later. It's exactly what what is is going hmm. to be sort of the future. A, a, able to walk right up to the door, call ahead, do pick up, get delivery. So that's. But the businesses, clearly, the restaurants, yes, will be affected. Is there? There's no kind of precedent that you can look to for this, is there? There's there's nothing in the past that would be comparable that you could point to and say, well, there's how we did it then, or is there? Not really. Nothing. I mean, you, you deal with road construction and, uh, you know, different issues happening. You know, we've had the power shut out for a few days, but nothing. There's nothing absolutely comparable to 30,000 customers shut down overnight for a whole school year, but basically for a calendar year now from, you know, end of March to April 1st, basically. What are um, you hearing? What are you hearing from the store owners, from the business owners? I mean, is, is it a level of... I mean, obviously, it's going to be concern. Where on the scale of between concern and outright panic would you describe it? Um, I don't think they're at outright panic. Major concern might be a good uh, a good thing, but a lot of them have have uh, all the retail stores have have all instantly set up um, online stores that they didn't have before, and are doing quite well. And they've expanded their customer base, not just the neighborhood. We've had great support from our neighborhood, um, the people in Westdale, because they're now realizing how important local business is. We're looking at things like setting up our own food delivery system um, to lower the huge percentage that the um, professional delivery services have. So that's a, one thing we're trying to figure out if we can set that up. We're just trying to figure out the insurance and legal part first. But that's the only thing holding us back. But we're trying to, again, create new innovative ways to help the businesses. So if they don't have a 35% delivery charge with some of the big companies and it goes 2%, well, that's a big, huge factor. So we're trying, again, innovative ways to try and help calm uh, calm the storm and, and keep a steady flow of business. But a lot I mean, of the do- restaurants are, are busy now. Do you really believe, and, and and I mean, good if you do, do you really believe that at the end of this, those that survive, and hopefully it's all or the vast majority, because of this could actually be in a better position? Because you're talking about advancing their business and everything else. I mean, that almost sounds like, you know what, if we can make it through this, things could be pretty good. Exactly. For, you know, our like, for example, our, our bookstore, King West Books and Mixed Media Arts, he set up a brand new website. He's totally functioning online. It's working very well for him. He's doing delivery and curbside pickup. It's doing very, very well for him. So he's reinvented himself. Take Note Boutique's another one. Casual Gourmet, our kitchen store. She just opened today for the first time, but she's she set up an online store. She's doing very well with that. So now her customer base, instead of being within just Westdale, it's now expanded. She's shipping across the country. So things like that, They've they, again, because we're, we're always trying to be fluid and adaptable, even each individual business is seeing how important that is. And, and yeah, they will, they're actually already stronger now. They're strong, much stronger now. It's uh, it's a bit of a frightening time, but uh, that sounds like there is some positive in there. Tracy McKinnon, executive director of the Westdale BIA. Uh, if you're driving by Westdale, uh, think of them, they're out 30,000 customers. Stop in one of those stores and buy something and, uh, you know, do something to help them out. Tracy, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Have a great day. Thanks very much. Everybody be well, safe and be well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Better get ready 
for higher food prices. You are going to be paying more for food going forward. That is just what everybody wants to know. Because it's not like we're not all trying to scramble and so many people are trying to get by. Food prices, the one thing, well, that and shelter perhaps, the one thing we need that we can't say, oh, I'll take a pass on food. We know we need it. It's going up. Let me bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, who was the author of the piece. He Now, don't shoot the messenger. He's only the guy who's telling us what is going on. He doesn't make this stuff up, but he is the senior director of the Agri-Food Lab at Dalhousie University. He's also known as the food professor. We love having him here. Dr. Charlebois, thanks for doing this today. Not a problem. Uh, you do agree, though, this is probably about the last thing that people would want to hear these days. <laughs> There's, there's actually a silver lining to the story if you if you're a little bit patient with me here. Uh, well, Go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm an academic. My job is not to be a cheerleader. My job is to make sure that the public is is uh, is better informed and uh, and able to assess risks as we go through this uh, pandemic, obviously. And my, my area of expertise is food and food distribution. And um, what we've seen so far during this pandemic uh, is, uh, is unreal. I mean, a lot of people weren't trusting uh, supply chain. I, I've always uh, trusted supply chain. I think we've spoken about this. Uh, you did, and you said it several months ago that you were sure it was going to hold up. What happened? It did. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty pleased with uh, with the food industry, and they've uh, they've done a great job providing food to Canadians, and they will continue to do so. But um, but uh, in my recent commentary, I, I tried to be as honest as possible with with Canadians, in that um, the food industry is under tremendous pressure. Uh, because of so, food prices haven't really been uh, affected by COVID. Because I did get that question a lot in the last few weeks. Uh, food prices were already going up pre-COVID, and so we and we are expecting a food inflation rate to be at about four percent by the time we're done with uh, with 2020. And it was what we predicted six months ago. Uh, what we didn't anticipate, though, is the very weak general inflation rate, which is actually at minus 0.2%. So what, which, uh, what it means uh, to, to people listening is that instead of a, a 4% being, well, a 4%, when your infl- inflation rate is so low in the negative, so you're dealing with a defl- deflation, essentially, uh, that 4% seems more like a 10 or 12%. Because uh, when you actually have to manage your budget, instead of, uh, of putting 9% of your budget on food, you're going to have to put, say, 11, 12, 13%. And that's a new reality for a lot of people. So, okay, I'm always, I'm not an economist, but I understand supply and demand. That's one basic concept that I'm pretty good at. And I think most people can get the idea of supply and demand and wrap their head around that. Let's start with the latter one. Let's start with the demand. Has there been an increase? And if so, why? Because it seems to me everybody's got to eat. And whether you're eating at a restaurant or whether you're eating at home, you're still going to eat. So the the amount of food being purchased that Canadians would need to purchase would be the same. Has demand changed? 
Yeah, so I'll respond uh, to your very important economics question in, in, in this fashion. So there are two things that, uh, that we need to, uh, to remember. One, uh, we need to eat. So that's, that's a reality. So we always need to buy food. It's a necessity of life, and we'll continue to buy food. What we buy, when we buy, and where we consume, of course, will depend on the economy. And the economy is not going to do well for the next little while. Let's be honest here. And secondly, uh, so this is the, the, that's the one major thing about supply and demand uh, moving forward. Uh, it's, it's the when, what, and where. Secondly, the nature of food supply chain is, is very different than, other, than in other sectors. It's a high-volume, low-margin business from farm gate to plate. It's always been like that. So you had to sell a lot of stuff to make a little profit. That's the nature of the business. Now, what has happened with COVID is that you, companies are spending way more money to service the markets. When you go to the grocery store right now, uh, you're seeing security guards. You're seeing physical distancing measures. You're seeing employees earn more money. You're seeing all of these things. Those, issues, those things will come at a cost, and eventually people will have to pay for that. On top of what you see in the grocery store, there's e-commerce. Well, somebody's got to have to pay for delivery eventually, and that's going to be all of us. So essentially, and, and those changes at retail are affecting the entire supply chain. It's happening in processing. It's happening in farming. It's happening everywhere. So everywhere... Everyone in the food industry uh, have to cope with higher costs. But high-volume, low-margin environment, there's no place. So you have to, right now, as we speak, everyone in the supply chain are renegotiating terms with the clients as we speak. And that's going to last for probably about two years. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I read something, and I'm pretty sure you wrote this a couple of weeks ago, a story that I don't know that a lot of people knew about, and that was that we have dairy farmers who were pouring out thousands of gallons of milk, just dumping it because they couldn't do anything with it, and pig farmers who were euthanizing pigs because they couldn't do anything with it. Is that because there's no there's no market for it? Is that because the cost to keep them going based on what they're getting back is too high? Why, why would farmers be doing this? There's got to be a reason. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of factors. One, of course, uh, the fact that food service just closed overnight, restaurants, uh, that really hurt. Uh, the food service sector is worth about $90 billion in revenues a year. That disappeared overnight. So think about what you would eat in a restaurant, chicken wings, uh, omelets, eggs, uh, think about fries, uh, lobsters, I mean, it can go on and on and on, ribs. So all of these products are consumed heavily uh, at the restaurant. And the consumer at the restaurant is not the same consumer uh, who would walk in in a grocery store. We just consume differently at home. And that's really what happened. And a lot. that's why a lot of farmers were stuck with a lot of uh, surpluses, uh, but it it does point to an issue we have in Canada, which is processing. Our processing sector is anemic, 
we should have actually been able to figure out a way to manage these surpluses way before COVID. In fact, we've actually seen surpluses in the past. With milk, for example, uh, milk dumping is not a new phenomena. It, it does happen from time to time. You just never thought strategically about how to manage them. But you're, I would believe that if farmers, if certain farmers have had to get rid of so much of their product and they get nothing back for it, we're going to see some farmers go out of business. That just, you can't help. And then if we have fewer farmers, that also, will that not drive prices up because the supply of the product is less and the companies want to buy it? I mean, everything ultimately comes back to us paying more. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, it, it is going to be a tough year for a lot of farmers out there uh, just because they, they just can't pivot uh, the way, say, a restaurant can or uh, a PepsiCo can. I mean, you can basically buy as a consumer a Pepsi product from Pepsi right now. I mean, because of COVID, things have changed dramatically, but farmers can't do that very easily. And so that's why it's very difficult for a lot of them to just change their model and, and try to figure out a way to market their products. And so a lot of them are, are really affected by, by what's happening. And, of course, there's this whole issue of, of abattoirs, meat plants. If you're in livestock, uh, you're at the mercy of, of, uh, of certain plants uh, being affected by C-19. So if, if a plant closes, uh, often you're, you're out of luck, and, uh, and that comes at a real big cost. It is not, it's a joke. It's not a funny joke, but it's something we all joke about that um, when oil prices go up, world oil prices go up, we always almost immediately see the price at the pumps go up. It hits us immediately. But when world oil prices drop, it takes a couple days, a week, two weeks for the prices at the pumps to go down. And people always point this out. Well, look, they're, they're more than happy to raise the prices. They're a little more reluctant to bring them down. With us now seeing this in the grocery stores, not oil prices, but food prices, if things return to some kind of normal, do you anticipate that we'll see food prices drop right back? Or will the grocery stores and supermarkets say, I don't mind seeing if we can keep the prices here for a while and if people will still buy them? Yeah, that's the, that's the kind of the message I was trying to send today in, in my comment. Uh, the fact that we're home cooking uh, and we've been doing it for, for quite a few weeks now, a couple of months, more than a couple of months, uh, it has set a new benchmark. And and so the answer to your question is no. I don't think prices are going to drop. There'll be promotions here and there, of course, and we'll be able to make some deal. And with a good strategy, you'll be able to save a little bit. But over the long term, this is what is going to happen. It will cost more to produce food, full stop. And in the end, consumers will have to pay more. The silver lining I was talking about earlier is the fact that we are cooking more and we are saving a lot of money. The average household in Canada has saved over $400 since the beginning of the pandemic because we're not going out as much. But as soon as we start being nomads again and, and things get back to normal, that's when it's going to hit. We're going to start spending again, and we could actually be spending more than ever. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was an announcement today, and... For a lot of people, this was a great announcement, and, and including me. I mean, look, we we want something now to sink our teeth into sports-wise. At least I do. A lot of people do. And even people who are not necessarily diehard sports fans are saying, I'll take something. 
I mean, I, it, it's comforting in a way to be able to turn on the TV set and, you know, whether you want to watch or not watch, at least it's there. You have the option because right now I got to tell you, I'm running out of things and I'm not a NASCAR guy. And so I'm not really excited about watching NASCAR. I'm certainly not excited about watching drivers race by e sports where they're not even in the car. And old games, you know, some of the old games that we're watching, yeah, they were terrific games and, and I've, I'm okay to watch them once, but now that certain networks are promoting things as classic baseball and it's just a nondescript game from September in 2008, it's like, well, who cares? I, I don't think that's classic. I'm, you know, I, I can use something else. So yeah, the idea that Gary Bettman stepped in front of a podium today or not, that's not true, stepped in front of a, a desk in his house, I think and made the announcement that the NHL now has itself in a position where it can come back as long as everything is given the go-ahead. And they've now sorted out how this is going to work. Yeah, I mean, it has the possibility for some good news here. I'm just a little, as I say, a little cynical and skeptical. Let me bring in Rick Zamperin of 900CHML. Um, Rick, how are you today? Good, how are you? Good. Well, no, I mean, I shouldn't say, how are you today? I know how you are today. I've been listening to you for 17 <laughs> straight hours on the air. I mean, the, the, anyway, um, you, uh, you were reporting on this today and what happened and you've written a blog post that people can find online, um, with an outline of what's going on. Am I being too cynical by looking at a few of the things that Gary Bettman said here and thinking, okay, you know what? That's great that you're bringing hockey back, but let's not try and play us all for morons. I mean, how, how can you not be in today's day and age? We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, let alone, you know, early July when they foresee uh, potentially training camps beginning. Um, but I, I, it, it's great to have a roadmap, and this is what basically the NHL is doing, is, you know, outlining its plans for a return-to-play uh, procedure. And, and basically, it, it's nice to at least see some dates connected with some of those items, whether it's the draft lottery on June 26th, that's going to be must-see TV. I mean, it already is, but considering what has happened over the last couple of months, it's going to be that and and uh, and then some. But to see some dates attached to some of the items that were addressed, including the draft lottery, including you know that window for training camps that they hope to you know hit, uh, it, it, it's great. At least we can, as fans, from a fan perspective, kind of plan. Uh, around some of these dates, get excited about it. But at the end of the day, you're right. We just don't know whether this plan is even going to fly at all because it's all based on testing. At the end of the day, testing the athletes who are going to be participating on the ice to compete for the Stanley Cup. Here, Okay, so I'm with you as far as the excitement that I, I'm excited that it's coming back or that there's the potential for it to come back. Here's where my cynicism comes in. Let me go through the list. First of all, Gary Bettman talking today, and one of the comments he made is, we're not doing this for the economics. We're just doing this because we know the fans love hockey. Gary Bettman, I'm shocked that his nose did not grow so fast that it knocked the camera off the tripod that was taping him when he said that. The only reason they're doing this, Rick, is for the economics. Yeah, uh, you know, 100%. The National Hockey League is a business. It's, it's in the entertainment business. Yes, the fan base is rabid, and, you know, I'm sure the commissioner loves when uh, you know fans attend games and and go crazy and, and buy merchandise you know that w without the fans there really is no uh, nhl there is no entertainment business uh, we know as hockey but uh you know there's contracts to be doled out yes the players won't get paid for participating in the playoffs 
But owners are still in it to make money. The league is still in it to make money. And it's not necessarily about this year, making money this year, because, you know, this season has really been a train wreck financially. But it's for future years because we're looking at future salary caps. What does that number get to? Is it going to go higher? Can it go higher under the current circumstances financially? And if there's no fans in the stands and it's such a gate-driven league, um, you know, that salary cap is going to be, it has to be, it's going to be impacted. And, and if it is not, player salaries will be impacted. So at the end of the day, yes, it is all about the money. Cynical point number two. <laughs> there are... <laughs> There are 10 hub cities that Gary Bettman says that, that there will be two chosen, but 10 of them are in contention now that will be uh, possibilities for where these games are going to be played. Chicago, Columbus, Dallas, Edmonton, Vegas, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Pittsburgh, Toronto, Vancouver. I got no problem with a bunch of these. But honestly, you are putting Las Vegas for a season that is going to be played in July and August on the list. Do you have any idea what the average temperature is in Vegas in July and August? And in fact, I looked it up, Rick, because I had to make sure. 41 degrees is the average. <laughs> yeah. You will be skating in slushies. I mean, this so, is ins insanity. L let me jump in here. And I, I know why Las Vegas, <clears throat> there's, there's, well, there's two reasons why Las Vegas is on the list. One, and, and this one's not really an important one, but it, it's still a new franchise in the league. But in saying that, it's one of the most successful franchises both on and off the ice um, to kickstart you know, a, a, a history of a franchise. But more importantly, from the National Hockey League's perspective, I don't know if there's a city in the world that has as much hotel space than Las Vegas. Um, so if, if Las Vegas is hosting 12 teams, or whatever the number is, uh, it, it can easily house those teams, transport those teams to practices and games, not to say that the other cities don't have multiple hotels, because they do. We know Toronto has a lot. Vancouver, Edmonton, who are also on the list, have a lot. Dallas is in that boat. But in terms of the sheer number of hotel rooms to choose from uh, and the logistics around, you know, getting around to the arenas, Las Vegas is, is an easy choice. However, uh, I'm not sure if they have ever tried making ice at their arena in July and August. And if they did, it might be an utter disaster. So I... I'm, I'm with you in terms of ice conditions, but the logistics of the city and what they have to play with amenity-wise makes a lot of sense. And again, to me, this goes back to the earlier comment about Bettman saying it's not about the economics. It's in Vegas. If you're considering Vegas, it is economic. Well, the hotels, I got you, but it's, it's about economics. It's how do we plump up a market that's already doing pretty well, but let's build some more excitement because otherwise, you know, Chicago, sure. Chicago's, you know, a place where it'll be warm. But it's not going to Edmonton. Same thing in Toronto. I mean, it'll be warm. It'll be hot. There'll be hot days, but it's not going to be like Vegas where you step outside and it's that kind of heat in Vegas where it's so hot when you step outside your glasses immediately, you can't see through them because you've been hit with this wall of heat and then going into the air conditioning. Same thing. Anyway, uh, and LA and Dallas, same things. I mean, these are all right. Those are two. Number three. Yes. The hat trick. The hat trick, the draft lottery, which is rather convoluted. But if we're now going to have a 24 team playoffs, which the NHL says it's going to have, which by the way is insanity, 16 is where it should have been. Leave it at 16, make the regular season that was played meaningful and count for something. Right now, it's a joke. But anyway, if you've got 24 teams in, so only seven are not making it, why are eight teams that make the playoffs, Rick, 
getting to go into the draft lottery. Shouldn't this just be for the teams that aren't in there? I thought that was the whole point of the draft lottery. Yeah, makes it makes no sense to me at all. I mean, <clears throat> number one, you're rewarding a team like, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to single them out, but the Montreal Canadiens had a zero percent chance of making the playoffs when the season was paused on March 12th, uh, and now you're listing in, in, in under normal normal circumstances non-playoff teams now getting into the playoffs, but still being a part of a draft lottery. So you're rewarding these teams twice. You weren't good enough to make the original playoffs. You are good enough to make this 24-team format. And we're going to give you a lot of, a chance for a, you know, a top five or whatever the, you know, however the ping pong ball is bounced. Uh, good draft pick. I mean, it, it's, it is asinine is what it is. I mean, it should just be here are the teams that are not in the playoffs and these teams only are eligible for draft lottery ping pong balls. And that's it. We, we go through this all the time. We, we went through this during the Edmonton years when Edmonton seemed to win the draft lottery every year. And everybody was complaining about how the system worked. And so as the result of that, they tweaked it. Well, the, the NHL's worst case scenario that they've opened the door for them to fall into now is the team that should never have made the playoffs gets hot, gets a goalie that loses his mind and is just stopping everything and wins the Stanley Cup. And then they have the draft lottery and they win the draft lottery as well. And that could now happen, which never should. I just, it, to, to me, it's, you're trying to serve so many masters here by making sure everybody's happy with everything. And to me, the, the question should have been this, to every team in the league, this would have been fascinating, to every team in the league, you have a choice. We will make accommodation if all 31 teams wish to go into the playoffs but then you do not get to be part of the draft lottery. Or you can choose to eliminate yourself from the playoffs and be part of the draft lottery. Which would you like? That, to me, would have been a perfect answer. And I would have loved to have seen what the general managers and owners did with that. Yeah. I think the NHL's first mistake was to have 24 teams in the playoffs. And again, they did this for money. Not necessarily because fans are going to be in attendance, because if there's only going to be two hub cities, say one's in Vegas and one's in Edmonton or, or whatever the case is, those fan, fans are not going to be, at least at this point in time, are not going to be invited into those arenas. And I don't think that's going to be an eventuality anyways. <clears throat> but to include cities like Montreal, big TV market, especially in Canada, uh, Chicago with the Blackhawks uh, getting that 12th position per se in the Western Conference, big TV market in the U.S., and the Rangers who were basically on the outside looking in when the season was postponed, another massive U.S. television market. Again, those fans aren't going to be in the arena, but those fans in those cities are going to be tuning into the broadcasters that carry the games, which equals sponsorship dollars for the league and ultimately for the teams and the players. So to include those 24 teams, I think was a mistake in terms of the competitiveness of the Stanley Cup playoffs. You're rewarding the teams who have had the best regular seasons, and I get it. Not every team played 82 games. Not every team played 70 games. There were some teams that played under 70 games. But if they used a point percentage and said, here are the 16 playoff teams, have a vote on it with the PA, I'm sure the Players Association would have given it the thumbs up and you proceed from there. And then you can have your normal draft lottery. If you were the general manager or the owner of the Montreal Canadiens, for example, because they got in as the last team in this thing, and the NHL came to you and said, Rick, uh, you have your choice. You can either be part of the playoff tournament and have a chance to win this thing, or 
you can be in the draft lottery and you know that your team is, mm, it has its moments and it also has its, mm, its moments. Which one, which way would you go? Well, if I'm Mark Bergevin and I'm nowhere close to him, <laughs> you know, I looking at my team, I would vote for being a non-playoff team. But, and I know it sounds crazy, because the goal of every team is to get in the playoffs. Because once you're in, you never know. And you could win a Stanley Cup. I mean, Carey Price gets hot. Shea Weber, you know, finds his youthful energy once again. He stays healthy. The Habs, which aren't the most talented team top to bottom, just find that stride like they did in 93 and win, what, 10, 11, 12 overtime playoff games to set a record. That could happen again. Um, but if I'm Mark Bergman and I'm looking at my team on paper, knowing that this team has also been off for two and a half months, as you know every, everyone else has, I'm thinking, you know what? Give me a ping pong ball and I'll try to get Alex Lafreniere, who's going to be the projected number mm-hmm. one pick in the draft, and we'll go from there, knowing that he's the long term or at least the next up and coming players are going to lead this team to better times. But right now, Montreal, and I would say the same thing for Chicago too. Yeah, they have a chance to win if they get in, but they probably have a better chance in the years to come if they get a top prospect. Imagine the Canadians with a guy named Alex Lafreniere as their new star player. I mean, it's almost perfect. And there is a reason, Rick, that the show Let's Make a Deal has been on TV as long as it has, because there is something fascinating about watching people have to make the decision about keeping what you've got under your box or choosing what's behind door number three or whatever. I'm I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you get the point. There is a, the gamble, the risk. And to look at this, and now you say to these general managers, and you make a TV show out of it because you can make a TV show to everything where each general manager has to stand up and say, play or draft ball. And you say, okay, we're going to go play. And then you get eliminated before you even make it in. Cause you have this round Robin thing where, before you even get into the playoffs where you've decided not to have the lot draft lottery. And now you're out three games in. Oh man, the, the second get the, the, all the beauty of sports and the second guessing and the critical criticism is there or the flip side where you say, no, we're, we're the last team, but we're going to go for it. And suddenly you go on this crazy run and you get to the finals. I, I, I think these are moments that, you know, I know the general managers would hate this because it really would put them in a horrible, horrible spot. But if Gary Bettman was truly telling the truth, when he said, this isn't about economics, this is about the fans. There's how you engage fans. That would be awesome. Another way to do it is to have, <laughs> uh, I mean, this is, I'm half joking here, have all 31 teams and you have a, just a massive uh, lottery system where everyone is in the playoffs and everyone has a shot at the Stanley Cup, similar to what the, the CFL is doing with everyone has a shot at hosting the Grey Cup this year. Um, you know, if you're the Ottawa Senators or the Detroit Red Wings, knowing that you're in the playoffs and you get a shot at the draft lottery, I think every team would obviously jump at the chance, but logistically having every team in the playoffs would be just a nightmare in terms of planning. I, yeah, I, it would, it would, although I mean, again, if you can do it, you could you do, can do it. Do like and a, I see double a bracket or, you know, a best out of three in the first round or give the top team a buy, whatever the case is, it, it's doable. I, I just see no reason why the Montreal Canadiens are in the playoffs and the Detroit Red Wings are not in the playoffs or the Buffalo Sabres are not. I mean, if the regular season didn't matter, 
why are you excluding a few teams and then why do they really have no advantage over the teams that are in there i just to me the whole thing that again i'm soured by gary bettman's trying to tell us that we're all a bunch of giant morons by saying this is not about economics this is every decision here has nothing to do with fans and it's all about economics and that doesn't mean we don't want hockey it's just don't feed us a giant load of steaming turd and tell us it's delicious this is tell us hey you know what we've got a giant tv contract and fans want to watch and this is good for everybody and at least be honest anyway i get fired up with this stuff i hate it when people come to us and try and lie to our faces or at least maybe not even lie but spin it spin the truth in a way that you go come on come on we know that's not the case yeah the one the one intro at least one of the interesting things if this season ever gets going again is going to be the tv ratings and how and and especially how they compare to the other sports because as we've seen with you know the the golf match uh, on the weekend uh, the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls uh, docu series. You know these ratings have been just absolutely extraordinary, record breaking in some cases. Uh, you know if the NHL is pitted up against Major League Baseball and the NBA and what those two leagues are trying to do to save their seasons, it'll be very intriguing to see how the NHL stacks up. Now my guess is they'll still be you know the third player in the mix behind those two other leagues, but how high? in comparison to other years will be very interesting, especially during the summer. Especially if it's in Vegas and it's 41 degrees Celsius <laughs> on average. Yeah. Players all no need IVs between periods. Yeah, and it's 38 with a human X here. I mean, there's going to be a lot of hockey fans. Let's let's call it spade a spade. There's going to be a lot of hockey fans saying, you know what? I don't want to watch hockey in the summer. I'll just do my thing outside. Uh, just before I let you go, Rick, I got to tell you this story. Uh, have you ever, do you know these new things, these um, baby reveal, gender reveal things that everybody seems to be doing now? Yes, yes. Where you, I don't know, hit a baseball and one's blue or one's pink or you open a box. and, and Anyway, I, I just saw one during the news break that I wanted to mention where a uh, a guy had a golf ball and hit the golf ball and there was a huge poof of pink and he was all excited because he's going to have a daughter And the poor woman who had organized this got the balls confused. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Which really, really kind of defeats the whole purpose of the gender reveal when the only job you have is put down the right ball. (laughs) Oh boy. But they'll remember it. Yeah. I saw a good one the other day and I think it was correct in terms of the gender, but the woman who was giving birth to the child, uh, alley-ooped a basketball to her husband who slam dunked it and the ball burst into the color. I think it was blue. Uh, so they're having the boy, obviously, but I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty neat. They will continue to make them more and more unique until we find one where the baby is like, as the wife is giving birth, there will be a <laughs> poof of color just before or something. I don't know. The, wow. the people will continue to look for new and interesting ways to do this. Um, did you know the, the gender of your kids before they came out? Uh, yes. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah, we t- we right. took the whole fun out of the game. Yeah, yeah, no, we were we were all surprised. We we just waited for a surprise and had one of each name ready to go. And um, <laughs> my wife was really, really not impressed with my suggestion the second time that the if it was a boy that it be Elvis. Wow, I could have supported. Yeah, I, I lost that argument. Let me tell you, very quickly. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.